Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we're speaking with Mike Ganino. Mike is a culture and storytelling expert who helps executives, teams, and thought leaders communicate, connect, and engage. He is the author of Company Culture for Dummies and has been named a top 30 culture speaker by Global Guru. His unique experience as a hospitality and tech industry executive, combined with his years as an improv theater performer, helped his clients and audience craft the kinds of stories that drive their culture, boost results, and increase sales. Mike's work as a professional speaker, communication coach, MSA, and trainer has helped create memorable performances and events for companies like Snagajob, People Matter, Uber, U.S. Foods, American Marketing Association, and more. He is a public speaking coach at Heroic Public Speaking, where he works with authors, experts, and professional speakers to improve their communication skills. Mike is the head performance coach for TEDx Cambridge. With a strong background as a hospitality and tech industry executive in charge of creating compelling cultures at companies like Protein Bar, Chow Now, Let Us Entertain You, and Pop Belly Sandwich Shop, Mike is the perfect choice for companies trying to create employee and customer experiences that deliver big results. His organizational know-how matched with his improv background from world-famous Second City, Upright Citizens Brigade, and Improv Olympics helps him work impactfully with executives and leaders to communicate on target. Welcome, Mike and Nino. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you. Well, we're so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I am ready. Let's get a serving for everybody. (laughs) Okay. So Mike, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? Yeah. So, you know, I kind of came up in the hospitality industry and uh, eventually was, you know, in my, I guess, late teens, I started acting, auditioning. And I think like most people who don't make it big in that industry, I found myself back in the restaurant industry, Mm -hmm. uh, which is very common for folks in the acting world. I have to say for teachers too, we're frustrated actors and actresses. Oh, really? (laughs) I, you know, it's interesting because a lot of the folks I know who are in the not even in the theater space, but just even in like improv or in the writing world are teachers as well. So now it's the connecting the dots for me here. Yeah, this this should be a study done. I think so. We're we're kindred spirits, all of us, I think. There you go. And yeah, so, you know, I was working in restaurants and I kept doing well and and moving on up. I eventually became a director of training. So there's the education link as well. I always loved Mm -hmm. teaching and coaching and helping other people do better. 
and uh, eventually became a director of operations at one restaurant group and then was uh, in charge of a wine program somewhere until it finally took me to become a chief operating officer and a partner in a place called Protein Bar that I helped grow from one location to about 15. Mm-hmm. And through that, really was curious. I didn't have a background in leadership. I didn't go to, to college for leadership. And, you know, I didn't have an MBA that taught you all the different things. And so I was always reading and learning and watching. And I was really curious. I think it's the actor side in me or the educator side in me. I wanted to see people that were known for being great leaders. What were they doing different? What were they reading? What were they watching? How did they interact with people? And so I just got really curious over time and it eventually worked. I got myself to the the top of the org chart in a restaurant group and we sold that in 2013 to a private equity firm and that gave me some options. And with those options, I decided to head out on the road. And so now I teach workshops and give speeches and I wrote a book this year called Company Culture for Dummies. But I'm out there talking to people about how to connect better at work, whether work is a hospitality industry, whether it's in the education world or a tech business, whatever it is, is talking about how we can connect better. Because I always believe that culture is really about how we connect and the relationships we have in the communication and not so much about like the ping pong tables and nap rooms and things like that. Right. Although they're good. They work too. If someone wanted to give me nap rooms and, you know, (laughs) snacks, I'm not going to turn it down. Right. So currently you're speaking, you're training on culture. Yeah. So, and largely within the culture world, because it can be so big, right? Culture can be people doing workshops on mission and vision. It could be people doing workshops on diversity. What I really focus on is how the stories inside of an organization, there's the actor side of me again, right? Mm -hmm. The stories inside of an organization, how those create culture. So what are people talking about? What are people sharing? And through that, we uncover the stories and then I help teams and leaders figure out how to communicate and create new stories better with each other. Sounds fascinating. And your book is called? Company Culture for Dummies. It's one of those books in that dummy series. I love those. I learned so much. Now, if our listeners wanted to get a copy of your book, where could they do that? Anywhere you get books. So if you're an Amazon person, you can get it on Amazon. You can order from Barnes & Noble. So any of the places online where you find books, you can find my book, 1-800-CEO-READ. They've got it stocked in all the different places. Perfect. Now, Mike, how would you describe your leadership style? You know, for me as a leader, I really, really am curious about what's going on for people. I think I always tended to be the kind of leader who would listen first. Before I went to a team or I went to a different part of the business or a different location and kind of told them, here's what's going on, I wanted to hear what was going on from their perspective. Because I think if you listen, if you get really focused on the stories people are telling and you kind of hear what's going on over here in this side of the business or what's going on between those two people. When you listen to those stories, the solutions and the answers and the way to move people toward action, wherever you want them to go, it starts to become a lot more clear. And what I found is that when I noticed people struggled to get people engaged, you know, everyone's talking about engagement in every kind of organization these days, or when I saw people struggling to influence others to get them to do what they needed them to do or wanted them to do or move toward a direction, it almost always came because they hadn't listened to where people were at the beginning. They hadn't listened to say, where are you at now so I can figure out how to take you to the next place? I absolutely agree. So how important from your perspective is it for leaders to hone their listening skills? I think it is one of the most important skill sets because 
It's not only about listening to people that might be on your team. It's also listening to the marketplace. And, you know, if we think of a lot of the folks listening out there who are in the education world, it's about listening to what's going on, what's going on for the people you serve, what's going on for the students, what's going on for the communities you serve. And if you don't listen to that, you start to lose touch really quickly, which makes it difficult to be able to to create solutions. And so I think if you can't find ways to listen, to tap into the undercurrents of what's going on in your business, in your organization, in your community, it really doesn't matter how good you are at strategy. It doesn't matter how good you are at pretty much anything else. If you can't listen first to get a pulse on what's going on, right? It's about figuring out what's the vibe here? What am I walking into? And what are people talking about? What do they want? What are they worried about? So when you walk into an organization, Mike, what's one of the first things you do? So a lot of times people will hear culture. I've actually done a lot of work in the last 12 months in the library world. I did one event and at that event was a couple of people from libraries, leadership, you know, in the leadership world. And then they said, Ooh, we need to bring you into my group. So I've actually done a lot of work in the last year with libraries. And so what's been interesting is that in that world, really everywhere, people hear culture and they think, Ooh, our culture needs work. We think our culture needs help. So come in and fix our culture. And what I know is that if we don't focus on some specific organizational issue, if we don't focus on, well, we're struggling to get X, Y, and Z done, or we're struggling to launch programs on time, or we're struggling to engage students, or we're struggling to you know, create new products or create new programs that really address issues, if we don't start there, then all the culture stuff becomes like frosting. It becomes like fun and tasty, but it's not like the core of the thing. And so where I start with culture, if someone reached out to me is I would say, great, let's talk about why you noticed it in the first place. What was going on? What do you think should be different? And by focusing on like a real organizational issue first, it helps us figure out what parts of the culture are not working. What are the stories people are telling in that area of the business or organization? So we can go in and figure out what to do next. And so I always start with what is the actual business issue that's going on? And then the second step is, well, let's go listen to some of the stories that people are telling in that area, because from those stories, we're going to learn a lot and we're probably going to find the solution and be able to get this done much quicker and much more effectively. I'm pretty impressed. That's deep work, which says to me that you've invested in yourself and you've done deep work, but we'll keep talking. So Mike, which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? You know, for me, I don't know, the biggest quotes I love around leadership really have to do with listening to stories, with diving into learning about them. And I think that anytime that we listen to that, anytime that we kind of find that it's the best thing. And so let me tell you the exact one, because I always get nervous with quotes that I don't want to screw it up for somebody and say the wrong words, right? Mm -hmm. And so my favorite quote that I always kind of use and that I go to and that I find helpful Mm-hmm. that I've always listened to is one from Barbara Kingslover. She's an author who's written a ton of books and not even leadership books. She writes about food. She's writing about travel, all other things, Barbara Kingslover. And the quote is, the very least you can do in your life is figure out what you hope for. And the most you can do is live inside of that hope. And for me, why I think that's a great leadership quote and something I think about all the time is that the biggest thing we can do is create a story of where we're going, is to create a really clear vision for our organization, whether it's a specific project or whether it's an overall purpose for what we're trying to do in our communities and with the folks we serve. The most that you can do there is really live inside of whatever that vision is. So I find often when I start working with a group, they've struggled to clarify what success looks like. So they'll come in and they'll say, oh, we want to work on this area of the business where people aren't working together so well. And I'll say, great. What does that look like when it is happening? And they've never thought of that. 
Isn't that crazy? They've never thought of like, what does success look like? Yeah. So for me, defining that and having like a really clear vision of what you're aiming towards is the thing to do. And so I love that quote from Barbara Kingsolver. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. And I love how you work <laughs> to clarify vision. You're tweaking by asking really provocative and important questions. You know, and it's those questions that people don't often get an opportunity to sit down and think about. It's mm-hmm. the questions that nobody ever asked them. They moved into a leadership role. Maybe they got promoted. They continued to get the next role and the next role. And no one ever stopped to say, what does success look like for you? And what do you want to create? What are you hoping to do with this new program or this new school that you're taking over? What is it that you want here? And I think when we stop and ask that, yes, we can uncover <laughs> some great stuff. Yeah. So there are three questions I keep coming up on. Who are you? What do you want? And why? I love that. Yeah, and people get stuck on those, but these are really important questions to ask. Yeah, because if you don't ask them, like, what are you doing every day? What are you trying to create? Right. You're just existing, my friend. All right. All right. So what type of leader are you inspired by and why? You know, I've been so lucky that I've gotten to work with some great folks who are inspirational in different ways, but I think ultimately, I'm going to sound like a broken record here, Lily. For me... It's somebody who's really clear about where are we headed? Because what I find is that when someone is really clear about where are we headed, they can often allow people some room to create that. Meaning, if I'm really clear about the destination, then I don't have to be as worried about micromanaging every step because I know and you know where we're headed. And so I can kind of let you lead a little bit. And the folks that have done that in my past who've said, Let's talk really clearly about what success looks like. Even if we're working on a project and they say, okay, let's get really clear on what happens if this project is successful. Those people to me have typically also been the ones who've said, and now that we're both clear on what success looks like, I've got your back, go make it happen. Let me know what you need. Let me check in. But they've been able to let me grow and let me live inside of it because they were really clear about what success looks like. And those people really fire me up. What you're doing is important to clarify that vision. Now, what do you do with people who get stuck on the how? Because you give them a clear vision or they have a clear vision, but then they get stuck on how to get there. What I find often is that they get stuck on the how a lot because inside of the team or inside of the organization or in their circle, you know, if they're just chatting with some friends and saying, hey, let's mastermind how I'm going to get from here to there. The challenge often is that there's not enough listening and not enough great question asking. For example, if someone is trying to create a new program, right, and they're very clear about what success looks like, but they don't know what to do next, that's typically solved with really great questions. Questions like, okay, you five people, this program is going to affect you, and this is what we're aiming for. How would you like to be involved? Or what do you think are the steps we should consider? Or what should we make sure we don't do? And often by asking those questions of the people involved, they want to contribute. There's this misconception, I think, that people want to be disengaged and want to check out. But what I find is that people want to be fired up and they want to be asked questions and they want to be allowed to contribute. Mm -hmm. And so often, if you as a leader can define really clearly what the parameters of success are like, what does it look like if we nail this? What are we going to have created? And then you turn around and say, okay, so you six people, 10 people, 50 people, whatever it is you're here to help do this. What do you think should be our steps? What should we be worried about? Where should we be concerned? And what I find often is that they know the answers better than I've known and better than the leaders have known. As you mentioned, there's a misconception that people don't want to work or don't want to 
put the work in. I think about how you empower them with your questions as opposed to micromanaging, where people then would pull away. But when we empower and learn how to do that, they're more inclined to move in that direction. I think so. I think that people then start to, I find that they kind of own it a little bit, right? When they've been asked these questions and they start to contribute, they feel ownership. Absolutely. All right. So, Mike, what's the best advice you've ever received? Definitely has been from this group in Ann Arbor called Zing Training. And specifically, it's an organization called Zingerman's. And it started as a deli. And now they've got a bunch of businesses. And one specific business is this kind of training organization. They do workshops and things like that. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys who's the partner there, Ari Weinstein, he started the whole thing. And In one of his books, he talks about he's got all these businesses and things are going great and he's written, you know, I don't know, seven books or something like that. And they're winning in a lot of ways at Zingerman's. And so people would say to him, wow, you're really living the dream. Mm -hmm. And he talks about, well, I had to stop and say, I don't know if I'm living the dream, I'm living my dream, but that might not be your dream. Mm -hmm. And while he didn't directly tell me this, what I took away from that was really profound, which is we have to define success in our own terms. And it's so simple, right, Lily? It's like so simple to say, well, you've got to really figure out what success looks like for yourself. What life do you want? But we don't do it enough. People don't do it enough. They don't stop and say, what should go into my day? What makes me feel good? And it doesn't mean that I don't have to do stuff I don't like sometimes. Like, you know, I'm running a business. And so, yes, I've got to do accounting. And yes, I've got to do all of traveling and booking travel and things like that so that I can go in front of organizations and lead workshops and write books and things like that. But if I don't stop and say, what makes me feel full? What is my version of living the dream in a really clear way? Then it's very easy to wake up one day and say, whose life am I living and what is this? And so that piece of inadvertent advice from Ari was really powerful to me about defining success for my own life. That is pretty powerful. And if we don't do that, we live coveting other people's successes, right? Yeah. And that's such a waste of energy and a waste of your own life. So that's pretty important. So thank you so much. Yeah. And I think not only do we waste energy, but we often feel negative about something that's not even what we want. We look at someone else doing stuff and we think, you know, like you said, you covet their life, but it's like, you don't even really covet their life. It's just, you don't know what you covet because you haven't stopped to think about it. So what anyone else has seems, seems like the grass is always greener. Right. So if our listeners wanted to connect with you and talk to you, what's the best way to do that? I'm easy to find once you figure out how to spell my last name, Ganino, which is G-A-N-I-N-O. And if you just Google Mike Ganino, I'm probably the one you're going to find. And so my website's at MikeGanino.com and then I'm on social media. There's a great spot if you want to just email and say, you know, something on the show triggered an idea and you were thinking about it, you want some advice or you want to share a cool story of something you're working on, I would love that. And there's an easy spot to do that on the website too. Perfect. Thank you. Now, Mike, what does it mean for you to have a good team and how do you build and sustain one? You know, I think that everyone is like searching for having a great team. And I think the challenge is that everyone thinks it's about getting certain kinds of people or it's about you know, when we hire this person or that person, it's going to create a great team. And what I find is it's often not true. Great teams are about regular people coming together with really clear idea of success and then really clear ways to check in. And so I always say, whenever I go to work with a team, whenever I go in and start to work on culture topics or communication topics, I always ask different people kind of the same group of questions. And it helps me figure out, is everyone even on the same page? Because often 
why we are struggling with culture or communication or relationships is because we have different expectations of each other. And that goes like in personal life too, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. if we have different thoughts of what the other one's going to do, then we're going to be disappointed in each other. And what I find on great teams is they don't have that. They have very clear ideas about what's going on and what everyone's doing. So I always ask a couple of things. I always go back to the question that I've been bringing up the whole time. What does success look like for this project, this team, this year, this organization, whatever, you know, whatever I'm working on, I'll ask the appropriate question of define success for me. What I find is the more that the team all has a matching version and not like a memorized version. It's not like they read like the vision that was written in a handbook and they memorized it, but the more that they all kind of talk about the same stuff and in the same way, that's mm-hmm. a good sign. The second thing that I always say is, okay, great. So that's the destination, right? It's like the endpoint on a GPS. When you type a GPS point into your car, that's yeah. the endpoint. So how do you all agree to work together to get there? And this is where people start to talk about values of, well, we do this, we have these kinds of things, we communicate this way. When things aren't going well, we share it this way. And you start to hear where people either start to point to blame, right? We try to figure out who did it and get them and and that kind of thing. Or whatever's not working, we throw it on the table and we all look at it together and we approach it. We try to solve like, how would we still get this done? That's always a sign of a good team. So that's the second thing I ask for is now that you all know where you're headed, what does it look like? on the journey? What are your agreements on how you're going to treat each other to get there? Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I check in on is what kind of feedback are you getting along the way? How do you know if you're making progress? Because just like a great sports team or something, we need feedback to know how am I doing? Am I making it or not making it? What I find is the teams that have the most amount of feedback coming from all directions and being shared in all ways, those teams typically are the strongest teams as well. And then the last thing that I always look for is What's the level of appreciation that's going on here? How often are people recognizing the great things other people are doing? How often are they saying, ooh, that's exactly what we should be doing. You nailed it. Thank you for your contributions. How much is that going on? Because what I find is all of that is about connection. All of those things require you to be connected and present. They all require you to be able to communicate really well. And they're all the things that build great relationships. And that, I think, is the secret to culture that not enough people pay attention to, that it's really about communication, connection, and relationships. In all the questions, you add value to the people you work with. Exactly. Great. Now, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it shaped your life? You know, I think one of the big challenges that I faced that really made me think about things. So, so I told you before that I've done a lot of acting and really specifically it was an improvisational theater. So Second City, Upright Citizens Brigade and in improvisational theater, you know, we don't have a script. It's all being made up. It's improv, you know, like the mm-hmm. TV show, whose line is it anyway? It's all right, being made right. up in the moment. So we have no script. We have no characters. We're figuring it out. And what a lot of people think is that that means you're good at winging it, right? But what it really is, is it's about the adherence to a framework. So if we were doing a scene together, it's that you and I both know a framework that we're playing within. And the very first rule of that is this idea called yes and. It's the core rule you learn. If anybody ever takes an improv class, it's the very first thing you learn is yes and, which basically means you have to accept whatever reality has been put down and then your job is to add to it. So you say yes to whatever's been contributed and then you add another layer, you heighten it, you make it bigger. Mm -hmm. And so I really live my life that way. And I think, you know, I learned that lesson in theater classes in high school. But for me, I learned the lesson in life, not just in the creative way. When I was 21 years old, I was a flight attendant. I worked for an airline and I was living in Chicago. And uh, I had been doing it for about a year when 
September 11th happened, when 9-11 happened. And when that happened, I had really low seniority. And flight attendants are part of unions, almost all of them are. And so when there needs to be a work furlough or people are going to be laid off, they do it by seniority. And so I got laid off because nobody was flying and Mm -hmm. airlines were in trouble. But I was living in Chicago, far from home. I had an apartment. I'm a type 1 diabetic, so I had insurance that I needed to pay for. And I remember waking up the day after I got the notice of like, hey, this is over for you. I remember waking up and thinking, what do you do next? There's Mm -hmm. nowhere to run. Like, I have bills to pay, and I'm an adult, and I'm living in a city, and what do you do? And I remember just at the time taking a very yes and approach to it and saying, okay, well, I can either be mad about this. I could be sad. I could be angry. The whole world right now is very confused and angry. So me adding to it isn't going to help my situation at all. Nobody's worried about me over here right now. So I can either be angry or I can say, yes, the reality is I'm living here. I have this. I don't have a job. I'm type one diabetic. I have very expensive medical insurance. What do I do with it? And so I took that approach and I said, well, you know, the background I had from college and high school was working in restaurants. So how do I make the most of it? And I immediately started applying for jobs and I got a great job right away managing this sandwich shop that had about seven locations and they were getting ready to grow. And so I started there in 2001, right after 9-11 happened and was, you know, like an assistant manager, not making very much money, just opening and closing a sandwich shop. And I ended up staying there for seven years. During that time, we had about 200 locations at the end. So I went from seven to 200. And I just kept saying yes to whatever situation. Somebody said, hey, do you want to go to DC and help us open that market and stay there for four months? Sure. How do I say yes? And then how do I make it better? How do I keep doing it? And at the end of it, I ended up being the head of the training department with a full staff of trainers. And in that moment, when I lost my flight attendant job, if I hadn't said yes and, if I had felt sorry for myself, if I had felt pity, if I had run home, then I never would have found that and I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. And you did that at 21. I did that at 21, Um, yeah. You know, that's pretty impressive because not many 21-year-olds would have that type of thinking. And you've also given us a new tool. Yes, and. I love it. I love it because it does put things. It's such a great rule. Because the reality is no matter what's going on, you can deny the truth all you want. You can deny what's going on, but it's still going to happen. So Mm -hmm. you might as well say, yes, this is the current situation. So what can we do to make this better? And you know, the big place I think a lot of the listeners can use it is pay attention the next time you're in a meeting and recognize how often your response or other people's response to someone's suggestion or idea is yes, but, or no. You'll notice it and you'll think, wow, no wonder we can't create new things. Everyone is always shooting down each other's ideas. And it also helps us to live in the moment, in the present, and lay a strong foundation, which is what you did at 21. Thank you so much for that. Hey, leaders, stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message. Want to end 2018 strong? Join a virtual mastermind group. Mastermind groups offer a combination of brainstorming, education, peer accountability, and support in a group setting to sharpen your leadership skills. It's a gathering of like-minded individuals who desire to focus on and achieve their goals through the study of specific topics, all of which are created to help us lift our leadership lids. So sign up for more information at masterleadership.org forward slash MMG and join our next cohort. Now, Mike, can you tell us about one of your greatest successes? 
For me, it's probably the book coming out. I wrote the book last year and early this year, and it just came out in May, Company Culture for Dummies. Mm -hmm. And I'm not somebody who you would have thought would have written a book. I mean, I was a flight attendant then because I had dropped out of college to be an actor. So I was going to college for communication, for journalism and communication studies. And I was like, you know, I really want to be an actor. I really want to go do this. And so I dropped out of college to become an actor and, you know, was working in restaurants and was like, ah, there's got to be more here. And I really needed health insurance. So I was like, maybe I could be a flight attendant. That's kind of like a restaurant job. And it gives me flexibility to continue to audition. And so me writing a book is not something I ever thought would happen. I remember I was going back through emails recently, just like two months ago. And uh, there was an email that I sent someone in 2006. And I remember saying, I was feeling like not that into what I was doing and I wanted to do more and I thought there was more for me, but I didn't know what it was. And I remember writing in this email, not even remember, I read the email recently because I was looking for a file, mm -hmm. and, uh, which is a good reason to save everything because then you have like a journal of your life. You so I was looking for a file that I had sent somebody and I found this email and I was reading it and it said, this person asked me like, hey, how is the new job going? Because I had just started a new job. And I said, it's great. I'm having a lot of fun. I'm getting to do X, Y, and Z. But like what I realized is I really want to be one of those people that is a public speaker and is doing workshops. And I don't know how you do that. I think you have to write a book and then, then it happens. And I'm never going to get a chance to write a book. Who would let me write a book? And here I am in 2000, <laughs> I wrote a book. Uh, they came to me and said, hey, we love your ideas. We want you to write a book. And they reached out to a mentor of mine about another book. And he said, oh, you should talk to Mike. And so for me, sitting down and writing 377 pages, by the way, Lily, it's a long book. Mm -hmm. uh, sitting down and writing that and, and then people reading it and people sending me notes and saying, wow, this section on this is like exactly what we need right now. I'm going to do it. That to me is, I don't know, I'm really proud of myself for it. And it's one of my biggest achievements. And I'm really happy that it's out there in the world and that people are reading it and learning from it and liking it. And, you know, we were saying earlier how much we like those dummies books because the idea of the dummies book is to make it super simple, to tell people what to do and not just to talk about the theory. And so the right. book is full of like quick ideas, how you can improve meetings, how you can improve one-on-ones. And no matter what industry you're in, it's really got some great things. And so I'm just super happy about that. And I can see how that can sell well because culture seems like such a complex thing. And to put it in a book like this, heck, I want a copy. We're going to get you one. Yay! The perks of being a podcaster. So the other thing too, when I think about a book is how you expand your influence, but also how you continue to add value to people as they keep reading it. And that's got to be something that really lights a fire in you. Yeah, you know, for me, that's been the really cool thing. You know, it's fun to read the reviews on Amazon and things like that. Mm -hmm. But what's really great is when somebody emails me or they come to my website and they say, wow, I was reading this section and I realized that this is something I'm doing that I want to do differently. Or wow, I never thought about it this way. I'm going to change the way I've been doing it. Or I just got this last week. I read your book a month ago. Mm -hmm. And since then, I've been doing this thing different. And my team has really improved. And here's all the ways things are different for us. And it's just so cool to see that. They wrote to me and said, you know, thank you for doing this for us. And I wrote back and said, you know, all I did was write a book. You picked it up and you did the work. That's right. Thank you so much. Of course. Now, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you? And what are you learning now? I love this episode. It's been so fun, Lily, because we've been talking about so many of these things that are like really, you know, creating a vision for yourself and always being curious and always listening. And so for me, being a lifelong learner is not necessarily about, you know, picking up books all the time or going to conferences all the time. It, it can include those things. But I think the biggest thing I found for myself, and I actually wrote about it, there's a chapter in the book about 
how to manage your own self. Before you start managing anyone else, how do you take care of your own self? And one of the big things in there is self-awareness. And so for me, being a lifelong learner is constantly checking my self-awareness. Who am I in the world right now? And this is what I think is going on, or this is how I think I'm showing up. What are other people telling me? And can I be open to that learning? It doesn't mean they're right, but it definitely means there are multiple perspectives, even to my own thinking. And so for me, lifelong learning comes through the interest of being very self-aware. And so sometimes that leads me to books where it says, oh, there's this area where I don't know a lot about. Let me go grab a book and read more about it so I can learn. Or I've gotten feedback that this part of me or this part of my life or this part of whatever's going on could be better. Let me go find a way to learn more about that so I can see. And the same thing happens with organizations when we start to think about how can we be a learning organization. I think it starts with self-awareness, which is really just listening to yourself and then finding ways to say, let me fill in the gaps. So this is where you've done a lot of work. The fact that you've focused on being self-aware has helped you to grow tremendously. And I'm with you. You can't lead others well if you're not leading yourself well. To do that, to me, is vital, especially in leadership. What tends to happen is that we skip this step. <laughs> right? And then disaster. <laughs> well, because it feels fluffy, right? I think people yeah. feel like it doesn't feel like you're doing anything. Right. It's one of the most important things. And it surely shows in your life, Mike. I really want to honor you because thank you. you've done great work and you continue to. And also, thank you for pouring into us. So let's kind of steer a little differently here. If there were something you could change in education, what would that be? The big thing I hear often, and I think I've done six gigs in the library world recently, I have a friend who works uh, at a pretty high level at the University of Southern California on the higher ed, like admin side of things. So I'm always listening Mm -hmm. to what's going on there. I have a lot of friends who are teachers. And I think the biggest challenge in education is I don't think there are enough opportunities and enough focus time to really listen. And what I mean by that is that so much has shifted. I think our educators in the classroom are doing a great job at this. I think it's at uh, much higher levels in education where we're not listening to what are the current needs of students? How do people like to learn today? And this is going on from pre-K all the way to graduate level. I got to sit in on a PhD level class recently. They were talking about uh, what happens in the brain during storytelling, which was very fun for me. It was like neuroscience of storytelling. So I got to sit in on this class and I thought, wow, what an interesting topic. And the way it's being taught, the way the situation has been created is not the way that we know people learn. And so there's all these things that we know and all these things we could listen and learn from, but the reform is not there to help it make it happen. And so I think what I find is that when people really listen, when they listen to the community, when they listen to students, when they listen to shifts that are happening around them in other schools, that big things can happen. And again, I think a lot of educators in the classroom are doing a good job of this. They're saying, how do I get inventive? What's going on in 2018? I can't teach like it's 1980 anymore. I can't teach like it's 1960 We've got to update this. And so I think educators at the classroom level are listening and trying to do it. I think as an institution, how we approach listening so that we can provide a better experience that really delivers results, I think that can use some work. Yes. And this is the challenge that we have. We realize that things are changing rapidly, but we have this curriculum that we have to get through that's been written a while ago. And so sometimes we focus too much on that and forget to listen. So certainly this is something that we continue to work on. One of the things that I always talk about is how do we prepare our students for this ever-changing future? You teach them leadership skills. 
Mm. If you teach them leadership skills, then they will be prepared for any future that comes their way. It's all about that self-awareness. I was speaking recently to a school. And so if there's a school out there that's listening, I'm looking for someone to do something with so I can write about it. But one of the things I think, in addition to those leadership skills, and maybe it actually is just a leadership skill, it's one of the things that falls in that, is really communication skills. I was reading an article from LinkedIn, and they were talking about Austin. Austin, Texas right now is like one of the highest growing cities for workers. They have like more and more people coming there, and they have more and more jobs being created. And so they LinkedIn did this research and said, okay, so what is missing from the people who are applying? What are the skills that are missing? And, you know, a lot of times people would think it's technology skills, it's computer science. The number one skill from this LinkedIn article, oral communication skills. That's the number one skill that's lacking in college graduates. It's the Mm -hmm. thing that's lacking in people applying for these jobs. And it's largely when I travel around and do workshops, it's what I work on is sometimes it's public speaking. Sometimes it's helping people get up and give a presentation more effectively. But public speaking is really just about connecting with people and communicating. So it's all the same thing. But the leadership thing for students of how do you prepare them to be leaders, I think a huge critical component of that is teaching them to be engaging, effective, compelling communicators as well. And so I've been in talks with an elementary school here in Los Angeles to do a pilot program on public speaking skills for students. And so that's really interesting to me. So if you're out there in the world and you're listening and you think, ooh, I want to do something with public speaking coaching or something, reach out because I'd love to either share what we're working on or do something with you. Because I look at my nieces and nephews. I have uh, two nieces and one nephew who are all eight years old this year. And I think about their ability to communicate is why they're going to get jobs. It's why they're going to excel in the world. It's why they're going to sell their ideas if they become entrepreneurs. It all comes down to that. And so it's a hot topic for me right now. Absolutely. And the work is so important and so needed. So thank you, Mike. Now, what have you read, watched, or listened to that our listeners should as well and why? So many juicy things here. So many uh, (laughs) delicious things. I'll use a lily word to dive into here. You know, one of my favorite books is called Yes And, actually, super simple to remember. It's by the folks who run Second City Works, so the famed Second City in Chicago. This is written by the people who run the business division of that. So they go in and they do improv workshops and things like that for companies on creativity. They do a lot of marketing work and advertising work. But the book is called Yes And, and it's written by Kelly Leonard. And it is just a great book because it's not about theater. It's about innovation and improvisational thinking inside of your organization. And so I think that works really, really well in the classroom. It works really, really well for administrators. It works really, really well in business. But it's called Yes And by Kelly Leonard. It's a great read. And he has a podcast called Getting to Yes And. And that podcast is also a great listen. Great. Now, I read that you coach people to do TEDx talks? Yeah, yeah, you got it exactly. See, I have a clear theme that I love communication (laughs) skills. So I am the head performance coach for TEDx Cambridge over in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So it was one of the very first and one of the premier TEDx events. And we do it every year in the Boston Opera House. So it's in this gorgeous theater. So we do one big event every year with six to eight speakers. Last year, I was coaching someone from the World Economic Forum who lives in Switzerland. I was coaching a person person who's a researcher and professor at Harvard, someone from MIT, someone from Yale. So it's very cool for me to get to bring these ideas of communication and performance to these people who are some of the smartest people in the world. And so yeah, TEDx Cambridge, I'm the head performance coach. Our event is going to be coming up again next year. And then we do uh, salons, which are smaller versions. 
And so those have two speakers each. And so we're coaching the salon speakers throughout the year. We've got one coming up in September, October, November. And then our big event is next year in May at the Boston Opera House. It's really fun. These scientists, you know, mm-hmm. I'm working with researchers who they're like the smartest people, right? They're so intelligent. And what is fun to do is to help them learn how to communicate their ideas in a way that inspires other people to action. It's really rewarding. And it's perfect for you because when you put together the curiosity, the listening skills and the clarity, that's a TEDx event. That's a talk. (laughs) Totally is. Now you have a lot of responsibilities. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? You know, I take time every morning. I have like a little ritual every day. And so I journal in the morning, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's only 10 minutes, but sometimes it's 20 minutes, sometimes it's 30 minutes. And I kind of sit with stillness. So whether that's meditation or whether it's just sitting outside, I don't have the cell phone, I'm not scrolling through social media, I'm not reading a book, I'm just being still. And so I'll sit out in the back area or if I'm at an event, if I'm speaking on the road and keynoting a conference or something, I will take time in the morning to go and sit in silence for a little bit because we just don't do that enough. And so for me, it's very grounding to do that. And the journaling is helpful. It's something I recommend to everybody, even if you're not somebody who would be inclined to do that, because it's another form of self-awareness because sometimes what I sit down and write, it's like, oh, wow, I didn't know all that was in there. I was, I'm feeling frustrated or I'm feeling excited about something. And so if you don't get it out, then it's just rummaging around in your head, possibly causing havoc. And so journaling and sitting with stillness is something I try to do every day. You occur to me as someone who has a lot of energy. Multi as dark. You know, it's uh, really about habit. So I have, mm-hmm. I make it so my journals are ready to go with the pen by the side of the bed. So I wake up, I get my water, flash some water in my face, and then it's like straight to it. I don't wait, I don't delay, I don't allow myself to get caught up in other things. Because otherwise, you're exactly right. I would find some little project to get excited about, and, you know, go bopping along in the day and forget to do it. You know, what I realize is that it calms me a little bit because otherwise I've got all this energy, like you said, and I've got all these ideas and I want to be out doing things. And so there could be a level of anxiety that comes with that if I don't take the time to kind of calm down and to ground myself. And I notice that if I'm traveling sometimes, you know, maybe I have an early call for audiovisual to test the microphone and the slides for a public speaking gig. And so I have to, you know, get up very early and I don't take the time to do it. I notice that I have more anxiety. I feel more nervous energy. And so for me, if I don't do it, it's very obvious. And so I can remind myself to take a break and do it later if I forget. You're very intentional about everything you do. Do you have a coach? I have a mastermind group that I work with. I actually have two groups, one that's more like on the marketing side of things. And so always thinking about, you know, how are you connecting with people? What's new? What's going on? And then another one that is more of like a mastermind business support group. So there are six of us in that group and we meet every other week and we do a video call. We all get 10 minutes, 15 minutes on the hot seat to kind of update each other. What are we working on? Where are we stuck? The other people give advice and then we commit to something. And so it's not just like a support group where we sit around and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? Okay, sounds good. We like hold each other accountable. So at the end of my like hot seat, they'll say, okay, so what are you going to do, Mike? And I'll say, okay, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z by the next time we talk. And guess what? When I hop on the call in two weeks, they ask me, hey, have you done the thing you said? What's going on with that? So I do that, but I've done coaching in the past and it's really rewarding. It can be a really positive experience because we all need that outside perspective, don't we, Lily? 
Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up, Mastermind, because that's typically new to education, but I find it to be such an important tool because I feel like you're being coached by not just one person, but however many you have in the Mastermind group. It's really great. One of the school that I'm working on the public speaking program with, the teacher that reached out to me to talk about doing something, she has a mastermind group with teachers in other schools and they do every other week or maybe it's every month, Mm -hmm. but they do a call in the same way. What are you working on? What are you doing? How can we hold you accountable? What's the measurable thing? And so she was telling me that she's doing one as well and finding a lot of value out of it, like you mentioned. Mm Perfect. Now, Mike, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? (laughs) I think I would give the younger me advice that people gave me along the way. I think I would have liked to have given it to myself earlier, but maybe I had to learn it. But the biggest thing that I learned from my early foray into leadership, you know, I was always creative and I always believed in listening and I always believed in communicating as a way to do it. What I didn't always know, and I wish I had known earlier that I learned along the way, is that there's a lot of learning in the journey. And I spent a lot of time in my early career really pushing myself to get to the perfect result, really pushing myself to have to have the answer now, 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 now. And what I learned along the way and I got feedback on is that sometimes you can't learn the lesson until you go through it. And I wish I had known that earlier so I could maybe uh, (laughs) chill out and have enjoyed the journey a little bit more in my younger years. Yeah, well, you know, just to make you feel better, I just learned that not so long ago, the law of process. Yeah. I tend to be someone who likes results right away. Right. And what I've learned to do is exactly what you said, sit back and just... You may not enjoy the process, (laughs) but accept it and learn from it. And uh, I think you're spot on. So thank you so much for that. Now, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? You know, I want to go back and just underscore the whole idea of the yes and thing. It really has the power to shift things. And it sounds a little bit like a magic pill, but it really can be. And so I encourage folks, as you're going to meetings, as you're meeting with parents, as you're meeting with students, as you're meeting with each other, as you're you know, talking to your spouse or your family, really try to say, where am I operating on default? Where do I immediately say no? Where do I immediately push back? And where might my relationships and my process, as you said, where might it be served from a little bit more yes and thinking? Yes and thinking doesn't mean you have to do the thing. So if somebody's in a meeting and they suggest, you know, we should do X, Y, and Z, just because you explore that a little bit, just because you say, okay, sure, that's an idea. Let's add to it. Let's see what we can do. It doesn't mean you have to sign off on it and do it, but it does mean that you can be open to exploration a little bit. And often what I find in almost all organizations is they don't use the first idea, but what they end up using is an idea that originated because of that, that they never would have listened to. So I just want to underscore the power of that yes and thing, because it's really powerful. And and you can start using it tomorrow. You don't need to be thinking about a big culture shift. You can just, in your next meeting, say, okay, when someone throws an idea out, I'm going to accept it and build on it. I'm going to add layers to it. It's powerful. It certainly is. And I'm thinking about my son. I have a 15-year-old. And he really primes my leadership. So instead of saying yes, but, or no, but, I'm going to practice this yes, and I love that. It's a great tool. So, Mike, I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. This is so fun, and I love this conversation. And 
you know, I know a lot of the people that listen are leaders in the education world and are, you know, educators themselves. And I think what an amazing place to be in, what an amazing place to contribute to. And so it's such an honor. Thank you for listening. And, and Lily, of course, thank you for having me. Again, Mike, great having you. Have an amazing day. Thank you. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.